Talk Recorded live. Peace and love, everybody. Thank you for chiming in. This is Domestic Balance with Mini Tags Organization. Live here tonight on the Brokenness, the Boldness show with my sister, Kenya Pope, who's going to come on and share her story with us. We're going to dive right into it. You know this show is all about the survivor story, all about sharing our brokenness, the boldness, so that we can save some current victims and current abusers that are out there that are looking for a way to get out. They may not know, but by this show coming on and reaching people, they 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 figure out a way that it's okay to get help, that it's okay to reach out to an organization that is doing the work that can help. So um, Kenya Pope from the D.C. area, as a child, she was molested and emotionally abandoned. Kenya was bound, blindfolded, gagged, and raped as a teenager. Imagine what it felt like for her to grow up accustomed to hurt and abuse. So she sought out. So she sought sought out and found it. She grew up. I'm sorry. Ended up in an emotionally and or physically abusive relationship. Kenya was that woman who publicly served the cause of health and healing, advocating against domestic violence while privately struggling, living in her car as a battered woman, um, living in her car, a battered woman's shelter and temporary housing in a hotel with human kindness footing the bill. Internally, she was a battered woman. Kenya, so let's go right into it. You say you are a battered woman. Why? Paint that picture for us. You know, first, um, I want to say to you, Queen Afi, I really, you know, appreciate this opportunity. You know, um, many people might have seen me in a very strong way, and I just, you know, appreciate the opportunity to be me, you know? Yeah. And so um, so I just have to put respect on the table. Um, I'm pretty emotional about this because um, the last particular cycle of this is just still recent, you know, mm-hmm. since it's Sentencing is scheduled for December 16th, so this has been an ongoing behind the scenes while I'm building my business, while I'm, you know, loving my child, while I'm taking care of my son, while I'm just being me. This has been ongoing, you know. Um, And so I had to understand for me where this came from. Mm -hmm. You don't just, and let me just speak about me. I didn't just wake up one day and realize that, okay, this is the first time this happened to me, you know. I had mm-hmm. to realize that I had seen my mother and my father, what they call fighting, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seen um, things that maybe people shouldn't see at seven or eight years old. My father and my mother were fighting. My father pulled out a belt and proceeded to whip my mother based on that fight. And I remember my father telling me, you know, 
don't worry about it, go to your room. And my mother telling me to call the police. And I remember being stuck, just stuck like a deer. You know, I remember that. And, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, there's a lot of different, you know, times because, you know, like I said, I, I don't carry no blame for the love that my parents gave, what they was able to give me, but I didn't learn that I was lovable, you know. I did not mm-hmm. learn it. I did not see that. I did not experience it. For whatever reason, you know, my parents were married and professional, but they had other habits, you know, um, habits like um, marijuana or other things and alcohol and other things. And I remember being beaten for stuff that I didn't do, you mm-hmm. know. And I remember growing up, Queen of Sea, where certain things I started wondering, did I do that? And I started having to convince myself, maybe I must have did that. I must have mm-hmm. did that in order for me to get for me to get that punishment. I must have did it. So I started believing things about me that wasn't real. I didn't know the difference between what was real and what was going on because it wasn't making no sense to me at that age, at those young ages in my life. And um, by the time I was a teenager, I had started taking up from my friends. I had friends that were teenagers in abusive relationships. And I saw myself standing up for them, you know, going to bat for them, putting myself in between them and their boyfriend. I mean, physically, putting my body right in between, you know, his fist and her face, you know. And so there was no way that I believed that I would be battered, you know, because I've seen so much. I experienced so much. There was no way. And so, you know, at the same time, you said a lot earlier today where it's like everybody in these type situations wears some sort of tag. Everybody does because you can't escape it, you know. So I don't know when it all started, you know, what was the first day. But um, I never really remember what a happy, whole, loving relationship looked like when I was growing up. I didn't, I didn't see that. And then I saw my uncles. My mom has probably about eight brothers, eight brothers, five sisters, something like that. And um, all of my uncles were abusive. They would love on me. They would spoil me. You know, they would tell me beautiful things, and I saw them beat the crap out of their girlfriends, wives, or whoever else. And so I kept learning these mixed signals. You know, I kept learning, like, you know, oh, well, I got to respect him. He's my uncle. But at the same time, you know, there's things that he does that I don't like, that I don't agree with. So I never really had a picture of a man totally and completely respecting a woman, even if he didn't agree with her. You know, I, I never had that picture. So, you know, that, that's, that's the answer to that question. I can continue, you know, going on. I don't know if you have another question, but that's the answer to that question. Okay, so it sounds like you were 
a battered young girl. And that's due to the effect of the childhood domestic violence. So I would say the cycle started very early on in your life where you was in doing this. So as time moved on, and then you said like a whole lot of other victims say, or even I've heard some abusers say, um, I would never put my hands on this person, or um, I never thought that it would be me, you know, and it ends up being that person. And then you found yourself trying to defend your friends who were in these abusive relationships too. So how did Kenya end up in abusive relationships? At the end of the line, Queen, I see you know, I I never thought I was good. I never Mm -hmm. thought that, you know, like I said, um, when I was beaten for things that I didn't do, it started making me feel like something is wrong with me. And not that it made me think, feel it. It made, I really believed it. I believed that I was bad. I believed that I was a bad girl. I believed that there was things wrong with me, that I deserved this punishment because I kept getting this punishment and I didn't know where it was coming from. The things that I was accused of, even while I was being beaten as a child, I knew I didn't do it. And it was a certain point in my life, maybe I was seven, maybe I was nine, where I started saying I must have done it. Yes, I must have done it. Yes, I must have done it. You know, and then growing up, um, how many families have that, you know, sexual abuser or that molester in the family that people know about and they don't say anything about, you know. So then that that kind of um, blew everything out the frame because not only was it the the physical beatings, but then it was the psychological stuff and the emotional stuff that goes along with, you know, being sexually assaulted, touched, molested, you know, it, it became a lot of things. And in my mother's side of the family, we had a tradition that we don't talk about things. We don't, we talk about the weather. We talk about sports. We, you know, we talk about food. We talk about the things that from the store, but we don't talk about us. We don't talk about what we see, what we hear, what we, we don't do that. And so whenever I would talk, I would get punished even further. So I began to just swallow inside. I was feeling bad about me. I felt dirty about me. And then I knew that there was going to be punishment if I opened my mouth, that the people that were supposed to protect me would punish me if I opened my mouth. So it just opened the door for me to really, you know, um, it didn't help that my family, you know, as women have a very wide structure, you know, and I started sprouting at the age of 13. That didn't help because now older people were looking at me as if I was a woman, you understand? And I had no mental ability or strength or security in myself or anything to know what am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to approach this? How am I supposed to, you know, that I'm valuable, that I'm somebody that, you know, that, um, 
there's a certain way people are supposed to treat you. I had none of that. I had none of that whatsoever. I was just walking blind, walking blindly into life, into relationships. And, you know, anybody who came across and, and, and seemed to show me kindness, you know, immediate kindness was what I needed. But, but that immediate kindness turned inside out. You know, that immediate kindness turned inside out. And I think, really, I was walking around with a hole. I was walking around with a big hole. And if somebody is is able to see it, you know, and they're accustomed to dealing with people that have a big hole or a big need that's not fulfilled, they see you as an opportunity. I was seen as an opportunity because I was walking around with this hole in my heart, this hole in my self-esteem, this hole in me, and it was my blind spot. So I walked into a relationship thinking that I was going to get that need met, thinking that person was going to show me kindness, thinking that I was going to find a safe place. And that safe place turned inside out very quickly. Mm-hmm. Wow. So as a child, and I'm just sorry because your story is taking me a lot of places and faces <laughs> that really, you know, and I, and I got to be real because that's what I do with, with, with the community whether I'm on the talk show or whether I'm out in the community on doing footwork, bootwork. It just pisses me off with these dinner tables not having the conversations that is needed. It's a whole lot of people, sister girl, that the same thing was going on at your dinner table was going on at their dinner. Everybody talked about everything else, but what was really going on in the family. And that's why you had mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, uncles alike, Jesus Christ, Lord have mercy, who could get away with doing sexual abuse or get away with doing emotional abuse or get away with doing verbal abuse, physical abuse. Why? And you were right at this dinner table, Kenya. I was at some of these dinner tables. But why do you feel like we don't talk about these things at the dinner table? You know, is it, to, is it to the loyalty of family? Are we scared to be abandoned by the family? Are we are we going are we scared we're going to be more beat by the family? Why is it that we don't have these? And especially mothers, mothers who are raising young girls that sweep it under the rug. You're right. You're right. The biggest thing that I could say in my family, the, the okay, the question that you gave, the question that you just asked me was the biggest question I had to understand to unlock the key to my own healing. I had to understand why are we not talking about this? Why is it that when I finally tell you and you finally listen, you tell me, what he has already done to other cousins and other relatives. Why? Why did another person have to suffer because of this? And some of them were not even blood relatives. They were these so-called uncles that just hung around for 15 years that nobody was married to, that they were shacking up in somebody else's house. 
There was no legal binding document. He could have got kicked on his ass, excuse me, because if you knew that he was doing it and you stood up for it, somebody else would have been protected. But, you know, when I look at my family, especially I'm talking about my mother's family line, you know, as, as, you, as you heard me say, there was about 13 of them, and they grew up in South Carolina. They grew up in the dirty South. And they probably all grew up in a one-bedroom house. You know, the kind of things that went on inside of that house, right. it's, not that, it's not that any of them actually communicated it with me. Mm-hmm. My mother still has not communicated it with me. My mother's living. Wow. To my father. She has not communicated it with me. But my angelic guides have showed me the type of abuse that they experienced living in that house. The type of sexual abuse that they experienced, the type of verbal abuse they experienced, and the type of physical abuse. Because here's what you have to think about I was my mother's youngest child. So right now, my mother's in her 70s, right? So if she was in her 70s, right, it's 2015, she was born in the 40s, right, in the South. She was one of the younger ones of 13, right? So she had brothers and sisters that were born in the 30s and the 20s, you understand? So her parents were born in, let's say, the late 1800s, 1890s. So people have to look at this, look at the history. This is a slavery mentality. This is the brokenness of black families from the right. diaspora. Right. They grew up on the dirty side. They grew up on the side where they saw um, community members in their town hung from trees. My mother saw it. My mm-hmm. mother herself saw it. People think like, oh, we're talking about black history. We're talking about 200 years ago. My mother saw it. Mm-hmm. My mother's mother was a, she was a maid in a house for white people. That was her occupation. Mm-hmm. And she could clean the crap out of any, any clothes you give her, you leave on the ground. She could clean it to white. But at the same time, they don't talk. Because right. in this world, if you open your mouth, look what happened to Emmett Till. Emmett Till would have been 74. Mm-hmm. Would have been 74. What happened to him? This is the same age as my mother. Mm-hmm. What was the punishment for Emmett Till? He was hung and burned. Right. So they Let me this. Oh. I'm going to jump in there. I'm going to jump in there on you real quick. Because <laughs> this conversation is getting hot up in here. Now, when we talk about the slavery days, right, because you're going somewhere, um, my theory is, is that, yes, we were beat, and we were beat before we even got to slavery days when we was in the good days, I'm just going to say today, because you had the trash, that you had the different trash of people, and if you'd done things, you, would get, you wouldn't get hung. And you wouldn't be, you know, all what happened to us when they came and took us and brought us to a land and started to beat us atrociously. 
right, we were taking different kind of beatings when that when slavery began to come in. Now, what I think is happening is, as the black African American community, we have taken on the behavior. We have now taken on that behavior that was done to us. And so we beat our children profusely. Uh, we don't talk about the things that are important that we need to talk about. Everybody shuts up and sweep it under the rug and <laughs> Master's coming through the door. Master is your father. Master is your mother who says, I'm going to put this belt in the water and let it thicken up real good, thicken this belt up real good. And I'm going to beat you till the sun come up. You see, so I think we have taken on the behavior that was done to us, and it has caused trauma. Because, I mean, I could take me personally, I could take a beating from a person on the outside. You beat me all night long. That's cool. But from my family, from my mother or from my father who's doing this to me, that hurts. That, that's going to traumatize me even more. Queen, I see then, Go right ahead, sis. You, you touched a nerve when you said taking on the behaviors of the outside. You know, let's go to the sexual abuse piece, right? Right. And this is the reason, the reason why this conversation is so great because these are the conversations I had to have with my own self in my own healing, and my healing has not completed. You understand? My healing yes. is every single day. Every single moment, I tell people all the time, you never know what is going on inside of a person that you see. Their face is screwed up. They got an attitude. You never know what is going on inside of a person. It's a constant healing process for all of us. When you say mm -hmm. taking the behaviors of the oppressor, especially when it has to do with sex, here's the thing with sex in slavery, everywhere, not just in America, everywhere. Yeah. What happened on those plantations, rice plantations, sugarcane plantation, cotton plantation? The owner of the plantation needed more workers. So what the owner would do is make men breed with women they were not married to. Mm -hmm. So men would breed with their sisters. Men would breed with their cousins. Men would yeah. even breed with their nieces and nephews. They would. And this was all acceptable behavior in the business of plantation. Mm hmm I agree. So a lot of times when we think about this, you know, this secrecy that we're doing with this, you know, we know about uncle so-and-so, auntie so-and-so, and, you know, they just have a thing with children. They are sick. They have been infested, infected with a disease, and they need help. And if you don't open your mouth, about what you know they're doing, you're going to cause more harm to all of the generation after them. Amen to that. Amen because to that. I can, I can stand up as a grown woman. You know how many millions of times I washed my body since the first time I was first molested, since the first time I was first assaulted? You know how many hundreds of thousands of times I soaked my body in water? But when will I ever wash away the memory. Yeah. 
I can believe it. I can believe it. It does not go away like that. It is a work in progress. You can't just say that it's over. And then if you haven't, like you said, you're still working through the healing process of your story, which I really do commend you for that because this is the kind of show that we like to bring to our to our famous listeners. Real stories, real emotions, real healing. Let me tell you about the most recent time because this is burning inside of me, you know. Mm-hmm. I decided to come down here. I'm not originally from, you know, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. I decided to come down here. I decided to bring my son along with me. I decided to open up a business. And I was assaulted inside of that business. You know? Mm-hmm. I was assaulted inside of that business. But here's the thing. You made a great point. Some people feel like, oh, you know, did he ever put his hands on you? When did he put his hands on you? Where are the marks? Where are the blood? I started to realize that this didn't start with him putting on his hands on me. This started a long time before that. Mm-hmm. What he used to do, because I was new to this area, he would drive me around in circles to go to local places. Mm-hmm. You understand? So this way, I'm I'm really believing that this place is too big, you know? Mm-hmm. And if I need to get away, if I need to move, and I need to move on my own, it's going to be too hard because everywhere we go is so far away. When I started driving on my own, I used to sit in the car and laugh and say, wow, look how close this place is to that place. In my head, it was miles and miles and miles and miles away, and they're right around the corner. Mm-hmm. He used to do things like this. We would get into arguments in the car about money, about this, about that. And then he would pull over on the side of the highway and tell me to get out the car. Wow. And I would say, no, I'm not getting out the car. I don't know where I am. And he would say, get out the car. Then I would say, you know what? Let me get out the car. Give me my bag. At least I have some change in my bag, and I'll figure it out. Then he would take my bag and drop me there and leave me there. Of course, he would come back, but it was part of his whole process to kind of, like, break my spirit, you know? Mm-hmm. Now when he comes back, I'm all frazzled. I'm all crazy. I got bottles. I got glass in my hand. I want to kill somebody. I want to see blood, right? Because I'm out here. I don't know where I am. I have not a nickel to my name. And I have, you know, I feel hopeless. I feel lost. I feel confused. I feel disoriented. And then he come back and say, get in the car. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. People would ask you why she didn't leave. You know, she's so stupid why she didn't leave, but you don't understand all the different layers of, of situations that go and playing on at the same time. Yeah. It's not just the hitting. It's not just the hitting. And that's why I say to people, you have to be patient with a person. You know, sometimes you say, I'm tired of calling that girl. I'm tired of telling her to leave. But just, just when you feel like saying you're tired, that's the, that might be the moment when she's ready to do what she needs to do. Yeah. 
Didn't I tell you that earlier? That you cannot tell the victim to leave. I might not have said that, but I, you cannot tell that victim to leave because the verbal and the emotional abuse tag is vicious. They are vicious. And when you have somebody who's the stronger manipulator, the stronger controlling, then the victim is just trying to fight their way out of the situation. But you have the stronger manipulator, you know, who can who knows what to say or knows what to do to get that victim to stay. So it's it, it, it's 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 ironic. People say just leave, but just leave can get victims killed, and it and it yeah. does get victims killed. Yeah. It has gotten victims. You have to leave Queen feet. This is the thing. If you want to help somebody in this kind of situation, you have to understand that they need to leave and be put in a place of stability. Because like you said, I would, even after I had finally left, and the way I left, I ended up in a domestic violence shelter in a safe house because one night the police kept coming, kept coming to my house, kept coming, kept coming. They said, ma'am, we can't, we can't keep coming. We can't. I ended up in a domestic violence safe house, and I had nothing. I lost my business. I lost my income. I lost, you understand, I lost my clothes, you know. And for the first few weeks, people know me. I had to tell the staff working there, please do not interfere with me when I'm sleeping because I can have a violent reaction that you would not be prepared for. Because when people leave, if they got to go and leave and don't figure out how they're going to pay rent, how they're going to eat, how the child is going to go back to school, a lot of women, I saw them leave the domestic violence safe house and go back to their husband, go back to their boyfriend, because they couldn't handle the stress of instability. Mm-hmm. So don't tell somebody to leave. Leave and do what? Wander the street without a plan? Without without security, without a blanket, without clothes, hot mm-hmm. water, without a place to rest their head, without a, a lock on the door behind them and a feeling of safety and security, you can do more damage to tell somebody just leave. I'm trying to tell you, sis. That's what I'm trying to tell you. That's why I love keeping the real head on the brokenness and bonus talk show because you can do so much damage, telling victims and friends and family members, you got to back off of that situation right there. You cannot just tell victims, just leave. They have to do exactly what my sister's saying. You got to have some type of plan, something in place that the abuser does not know what has to be. That it's like an underground railroad. Don't think that you can just swoop in and tell them, come live at your house. Even the girl who came to pick me up, because guess what happened? When I'm calling the police, calling the police, the police couldn't even transport me. They said, ma'am, you need to leave, but we cannot even take you to the safe house. You need to call one of your friends. I said, what friends? I moved down here. He wanted to introduce me to his cousins as my friends. Mm-hmm. He would give them my phone number and say, these should be your friends. He would interfere with the one friend that I had that I would talk to on the phone, right? So what Mm -hmm. friends did I have? And finally, one girl 
who I was a little close to was a mutual friend. I begged her to come and pick me up. Mm-hmm. And even with that, she didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel comfortable. He ended up following her car. We had to, I mean, it was a mess. We had to, we had to find a hospital to stay in the hospital parking lot. It was like, it was like a episode. It was like a bad episode. <laughs> it was like a bad reality TV episode of mm-hmm. Wow. When people feel like you know, it's a given. It's a give and take. If mm-hmm. people, if people feel like, you know, I love this woman, no matter how he's treating her in his mind. He grew up where his father beat the crap out of his mother. I didn't know that before I got into a relationship with him. Right. I mean, when I tell you his mother beat the crap out of his mother, and his mother would say, please just don't do it in front of the kids. Mm-mm-mm. So his but, idea of loving a woman, he still feel like he's loving a woman. He feel like that's his woman that he's loving. So if you think that you can just walk away in the sunset, right, and gallivant to one of your friend's house that he knows already, one of your family, you think that that's going to make him feel comfortable and say, oh, okay, I'm going to let her live. I'm going to let her go do her thing. I support that. Mm-hmm. So you're putting yourself in, je- in jeopardy too as the friend trying to open up yourself, say, just leave and come to my house. Really, if you're not trained in martial combat, if you're not a security surveillance officer, if you don't know what it is to, 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 to night watch and to be surveillance and security, that's not a good suggestion, not for yourself and not for the victim as well, because you open yourself up to more drama. Mm-hmm. You have wow. to have a plan. It's like an underground railroad plan. Yeah. This is why I had to shut everything down. I had to shut down email accounts, websites, phone mm-hmm. number. I had to shut everything. I used to talk in codes. Mm-hmm. People used to say, oh, well, you know, you know, what number is this? I used to call from different numbers. When I answered the phone, I answered with a different tone of voice until I could get myself free. Mm-hmm. And it's been since. From February to October, that I can say my case is finally closed. Yeah, that's and what I'm going to ask. Yeah, that's what I'm going to find out. So what? So the case is closed. So now we moving into your boldness, and I know that you said it's still emotional for you. It's still very fresh and new. But what are you looking forward to? What is it that you want? current victims, current abusers to know out there through your boldness that you're working through now? Hmm. You know, a lot of people used to say, oh, you know, Kenya, you're fighting hard to get your life back. You're fighting hard to get your life back, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I had to sit with that for a while, Queen Afi. When I was in a domestic violence shelter, people know, I had sticky notes all around my room, all type of affirmations, all type of meditation prayers. Mm-hmm. I had to light up my room to encourage myself. And I said, you know what? No, I don't want my life back. I want my life. Mm-hmm. The life that's destined for me from this point forward. I don't want nothing from my old life. And it was so hard at first, right? Because I lost everything. 
I moved mm-hmm. from another state. I had items for years. I had my grandmother's items. I had shoes, coats, clothes, you name it. I had it. Right. I had everything. But sometimes, even in South that, I had to realize that, you know, spiritually, I needed to let all of that die so I could have the life that I'm having now, which is open. I'm able to talk about me, you know. Yeah, I'm a business owner. Yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. Yes, you know, I'm a mother. Yes, I'm a creator. Yes, I'm an author. Yes, I have a book coming out. And my book is about how do you move from lessness to abundance? How do you actually get into a life not where you're just making it, you know, oh, okay, I'm going to get my security deposit paid, and, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to get food stamps, and, I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to get the system to pay me reimbursement, workers' compensation, or, you know, victim compensation. No, not that. Not that. A life, a full life. Mm-hmm. And a this life, right? And mm-hmm. a life, healthy relationship with myself first. You know? Right. Wow. I know who I am. I know what I am. I know whose I am. I know what I can offer. I know who my people are. See, some people, they do work like I work. But, you know, as much as it might look shiny, Real people understand real. People come yeah. to me and they say to me, yo, I just feel like I could tell you this, boom, boom, boom. And they don't even realize I lived in, a, I lived in my car. They don't even re- but they're telling me the same story that I, that I lived through, not that I mm-hmm. read in the book, mm-hmm. that I lived in my car, that I was mm-hmm. showering in a supermarket bathroom in order to go to a job interview. Wow. You understand? I guess you got to take one more minute. You got to take one more minute and close you out because we got another interview. We could go on and on all night, me and you. <laughs> and I our know. famous listeners, we could go on and on all night, but we got to close out. Cause my, message is, my message is very, 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 very simple, mm-hmm. that I deserve an abundant life. Not my old life, not the ex version, not the other one, this one. And I claim mm-hmm. this one every single moment of every single day. I just get to be me. And that's Amen. how I move from lessness to abundance, you know? And that mm-hmm. book is available. That website is available, lessness to abundance.com. That's me. Mm hmm. And I'm gonna put that in the uh, in the group tonight too. Thank you so much for your transparency here tonight, your self acceptance, and your self awareness, and knowing the the story and connecting those dots now, and where you play your part at in. That's great because now you became a light for everybody, other victims, other abusers that are going through. You know how to maneuver them through their situation, and and that's just a blessing in itself. I mean, and so I agree from lessness to abundance. You know, it makes sense, and it makes sense that you would send that message given that your story is what it is. So we definitely thank you tonight, Kenya, for being on with us, girl. You keep 
up the good work that you're doing, good self-work, self-work that you're doing and giving back to our communities and fighting this good fight in domestic violence. We could go all night long with Miss Kenya. I'm trying to tell you, her story is just amazing. Full of the tags that we talked about here tonight when it comes to domestic violence. I heard verbal. I heard emotional. I heard physical. I heard sexual. And I know with all that, it was some financial abuse going on with all of that happening. You know, so she touched on some very good avenues about her story and sharing with us. And then she kept it so real with us because she said, I'm still battling emotionally with some things. You, you can't beat that with this sister comes on and share her story while she's still in some of her hurting steps. She has not fully healed yet. And, and, and it's amazing for her to do this. She stepped out there with us tonight on the Brokenness the Bonus Talk Show. And Kenya, we love you and be encouraged in doing self healing, self-work, all right? And I know you guys are proud of Kenya here tonight. We got our second guest coming on. Patrick is going to come on and share his story with us, too. I'm just excited to have him on. He and I connected over Twitter. And, um, you know, he saw that I was reaching out for the men to tell their stories, men that are victims of domestic violence, men that are abusers of domestic violence to share their story with the world, you know, and I think he grabbed hold of to one of my to one of my tweets or he found me some way, somehow. And we've been connected ever since and it's just been a joy to be connected with him on Twitter and retweet and him and I we talk about, you know, men being victims of domestic violence. Because it is it is an issue too as well. We have a lot of brothers who are suffering from domestic violence. So let me get him on. Patrick, is that you? Hi, this is Patrick. Hey, Patrick, it's Queen. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. It is so good. I'm so glad to finally get you on the show here tonight and share your story with us. Let me tap into a little bit of your bio and then we'll move forward from there. Author of sure. I Am Me, he tells the story of a boy who was raped when he was nine. Then as a teenager, one day after hanging out at his best friend's house while watching the police and reports across the street from his friend's home, he discovers that the man that raped him Years earlier was a serial killer, John Wayne Gracie. I think I heard of that name before, too, and you won't enlighten me. He tells the story of a boy who was bullied by an older brother for more than 20 years. He tells the story of a boy who discovers he's gay, but because he's part of a typical Irish Italian family, living on the northwest side of Chicago, he hides who he is. Oh, man, take us to the nine-year-old boy that was raped. Um, well, my story is 
pretty complex. Um, and I've gone through a lot of um, trauma, but um, now I'm a survivor and um, living my life in the best way I possibly can. Um, I, I don't know if you are aware, um, I uh, was a speaker this past week, a week ago, um, for the Chicago Police Department um, here in Chicago for Domestic Violence um, Awareness Month and um, was joined by our First Lady, Amy Rural, um, and it was a privilege. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like, I can read the speech I wrote because it kind of tells everything you're talking about tonight. Okay. Is it under, like, six yeah. minutes? Yeah. Yeah, it's quick. I'll be quick. Um, so basically what my speech was, and I'll, I'll give it, domestic violence and abuse can happen to anyone regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, income, or other factors. Um, men, are, men are victims of nearly 3 million physical assaults in the U.S and one in four women will experience domestic violence during her lifetime. I was one of those statistics of abuse, but not any longer. I lived um, most of my life with abuse. It started at a very early age. At around the age of five, my older brother began to beat me out of jealousy. Jealousy. Um, he hated the fact that I got more attention from our mother, so he would beat me as often as he could. When I was five years old, he slammed my head into the kitchen table, and I received nine stitches in my head. At the age of seven, he punched me in my face and my teeth went into the upper part of my lip and I received 12 stitches in my mouth. When I was 12, he threw me onto our basement floor and I received a concussion. Each time my parents took me to the emergency department, the ER doctor would ask them, the same question, how did this happen to your son? And my dad would say the same thing every time, boys will be boys. So the message I'm giving you guys today on this show is that abuse is in so many ways. Then when I was nine years old, as you had said earlier, my life changed forever, and I, could ne- I would never be a normal kid again. On that day in January of 1973, I was raped in the bathroom department store. It gets even worse. In 1978, while I was watching the local news, 
they were covering a story about a man that was dressed up as a clown for kids' parties. He was arrested for killing 33 young men. His name was John Wayne Gacy. When I saw his mugshot on the television screen, I knew it was him. And part of me went into a deeper depression. Right around that same time in my life, I felt different about myself and confused about my sexuality. Even if I was gay and had these feelings, I could never express them because my family would never, ever accept me that way. I came from a very strict, devout Catholic family, so I crawled into my closet and hid who I really was, the gay person. I married twice to two women so I could live the life my family expected of me. Both of my ex-wives were physically and mentally abusive to me. While I was married to my first wife, I um, is when I finally got psychological help and I began to see my psychiatrist and I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. I learned at that time that this condition is common among victims of abuse and trauma. So I guess what I'm telling all of you is that I was a victim. My psychiatrist told me that I was drawn into that abuse, me, because it was all I knew. And as weird as it sounds, it was comfortable to me. Finally, after the divorce from my second wife, I decided I was going to come out and I was going to tell the world I was gay and I began to live my life for me. Not having any exposure to the gay lifestyle, I decided to find my perfect partner on the Internet using Match.com. I met Eric, a guy from Los Angeles, who was looking to meet a guy from the Midwest. We started dating long distance, and each of us would travel back and forth during the first year of our relationship. I noticed early on that Eric and I had some Eric had similar traits to my ex-wife. He was extremely controlling and he was very jealous when we'd go out in public. He'd always accuse me of flirting with other men and sometimes in public he would tell guys that we were a couple and that we were not and I was not able to talk to them. After the first year of a long-distance relationship, Eric decided to move to Chicago, and we started, and he, he wanted to start a new career. 
I expressed to him that I should, he shouldn't move here for me. I didn't want him to be here for me. Once he moved to Chicago and purchased his condo, he convinced me to rent my place and move in with him. He consumed my life, and I allowed it. After I moved in, he made me cut all ties with my good friends because they were all single, and he thought if I hung out with them, I'd be cheating on him. He even manipulated my weekends with my daughter. He would get in arguments with her about things that didn't even concern him. And she resented him and even told me that she didn't like him. Over the next few years, he got access to all of my credit cards and my bank accounts. He started withdrawing money from my accounts and running up charges on my credit cards. He demanded that I come home right after work and I could not attend social events with my coworkers because he assumed I was cheating. Then he became physically abusive. This is hard. Um, He would beat me. And in one particular instant, he threw me down a flight of stairs and I broke my arm and I was rushed to the hospital. After returning from the hospital, I was taking Vicodin for the pain. Mm And I wanted to end my life. I was drinking vodka, and I took a bunch of pills, and I called my psychiatrist, and I told him I wanted to die. He immediately called my mom, and he told her that I was going to be admitted to the hospital in the mental ward for attempted suicide. When I was released, the hospital, from the hospital, my mother and I went back to Eric's house and I was gathering up my stuff. Eric begged me not to leave. He changed. But it was it was the end. He stalked me for a while, but it stopped. Although I got out of the abusive relationship with Eric, my past abuse didn't stop. I had an older brother, as you indicated, and my brother bullied me. In 2010, when my father died, my mother had a family dinner to allow us to go over my father's will. I was supposed to bring the wine, and I ran late from work and didn't have the opportunity to do that. When I came into the house, my brother asked where the wine was. I said, I apologize that I didn't have it. He called me an effing faggot and that he hated me my entire life. I turned to my family who was sitting at the table 
and I said, did you just hear what he said to me? And they all put their heads down. Wow. I told them, I told them they were all crazy. And I want to jump in there. Can I jump in there? Sure. I want to jump in there because this brings us back to the same thing that our guest said earlier. The families, we sit under the rug and act like nothing is happening. Why do you think that is, Patrick? You know, people ask me this question quite often when I'm interviewed. Um, With my family, it was, how do I want to say it? Um, Say it real. No, it was, it was. The 1970s, and my parents were, my father was an immigrant from Italy, and we had to be the picture-perfect family. And I had relatives that have read my book, and they said, oh, my God, I never knew this about your family. Right. So the thing about it was that they didn't want to expose what was going on. And it could be to the fact that they wanted to be the perfect family. Uh-huh. Um, but we weren't, <laughs> obviously. Obviously. Um, so, you know, I spend my my time now speaking publicly Mm-hmm. Um, about anti-bullying, about child abuse um, awareness, about um, domestic violence. You uh-huh. know, eighty to eighty-five percent of men never come forward about their abuse. They sure don't. I'm one of those statistics, and I will not be silent anymore. Right. God bless you for that. Well, thank you, Patrick. We got to run. Your story is amazing. I'm full. I'm so full. And I know our famous listeners are full. Your story is amazing. You know, to think that you were raped by John Wayne Gacy. I mean, American serial killer. And you live, you're still here telling your story to think you endured abuse in your household from your own brother, you know, and you're still here. And then you get in a relationship, online relationship, and meet someone, and you're still here. Just take one 30 seconds and plead to victims and abusers to get help. Yeah, let me end this with one sentence or two. Please, walk away from here today with this message. There's always a way out and a better life. I'm living proof that you can survive and live an amazing life because now I I am me and I could not be happier. I have an amazing partner who's the love of my life. 
I have a 19-year-old daughter who's incredible, and I'm living my life for me. That's so hot. Can you tell us where we can get the book at? My website is www.patrickdottie.com. Okay. I keep saying wrong, Daddy. Okay. <laughs> www.patrickdottie.com. Yes. Okay. And then um, I have another website, youandmecanstopbullies.com. Okay. And, um, you know, my life, uh, I'm working with producers right now in Hollywood that are turning my book into a movie. Um, I'm changing my life. And, yeah. um, you know, it's it's about giving back. It's yeah. about helping victims understand that they don't need to be victims anymore and they can be survivors like me. Yeah. I have one last question for you. So where's the brother who was doing this to you? Is the family, are you and the brother still talking? Are you still kind of what? No, um, I have no relationship with my family anymore. Um, okay. You know, basically, my, I, I, I shouldn't say I don't have any relationship. His, my brother's daughter and son have reached out to me recently because I was always like their father figure. And um, they have no relationship with their father. He has shown his as he did to me and um, now people understand that he's not a right person I pray for him every day pray for him Mm -hmm. every day and um, you know I I don't have any regrets I don't have any anger Mm -hmm. you have to get past that yeah, you do. Thank you so much, Patrick. We appreciate you here on the Brokenness to Boldness Talk Show. Your story is amazing, and we got a hit before you take it to Hollywood. So we, we are extremely blessed here tonight with your story. And, of course, we're on Twitter all the time together, so we'll just keep doing what we're doing, advocating for men, victims. You know it, my friend. To step up and share their stories. I and I, pre- I, uh, I I I include you with all my tweets because yeah. you know you and I are going to make a difference. Yes, and I appreciate that too. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for being here tonight with us. Well, you heard it tonight here live on the Brokenness the Boldness Talk Show, and let me just tell you, John Wayne Gacy was a serial killer and rapist who sexually assaulted and murdered at least 33 teenage boys and young men between the ages of, I'm sorry, between the, between the times of 1972 and 1978, Chicago in Chicago, Illinois. And God has blessed us with one of his victims to be last here on the call. When the John Wayne, John, John Wayne, J.C. Cases, 
a lot of those young boys and men did not live. He killed them all. He killed a lot of them. So we are blessed to have Patrick here with us sharing his story tonight. And we got it. We got a little bit of it before Hollywood is going to go ahead and, and do what they're going to do with it. We have been blessed by Kenya's story here tonight. The energy, energy that she put out about being in a household growing up in childhood domestic violence and finding herself in domestic violence relationships, and she came on still. Wounded. She came on still wounded. I'm so proud of her for that. Coming on still still wounded and sharing her story. That takes a lot of courage what my brother and my sister have done here tonight. And I told you, we specialize in bringing you real stories, real emotions, and real healing. So hopefully something has been said here tonight that will encourage current victims and current abusers that. The help is here. You know, it's definitely here with Domestic Violence Women's Many Tags Organization. We're reaching out to you. We are here to help you transform that Amjadella and get your life headed on the right track, get you healing through oppression, poverty, mind poverty, all right, and emotional damage. That's the work that we do, and that's the work this show did here tonight. That's why we love the Brokenness and Boldness talk show. There's no other show out here being done like this. You research. There's no other show being done like this out here. Now, what I want to do is give out the T-shirt that I said that I was going to do so we can close on out. I have a T-shirt that I was going to get to call the number 12. And call the number 12. You are in Washington, D.C. Are you with me? Because I just opened your line. Call call the number 12. Washington, D.C. Say hey, Queen. Can you talk? Who do we know is number 12? This this is calling number 12. Do you know Queen of D? Yes. (laughs) You're my sister. I know that's right. Who is this? Beautiful believer? Yes, all day. Let me find out you want a t shirt girl here tonight <laughs> on the Brokenness and Bonus Talk Show. Woo! We want a t shirt. Call that number 12, girl. Yes, you are. And you know, I will see you out in the community. Remind me to get Definitely. you a t shirt. You have one t shirt here tonight on the Brokenness and Bonus Talk Show. And thank you for chiming in tonight. So we've given away the T-shirt here tonight, and I definitely want to thank all of our famous listeners who were listening live here tonight on the Brokenness the Bonus Talk Show. If you have not friend request me on Facebook, do so at Q-U-E-E-N-A-F-I, Q-U-E-E-N-A-F-I, all one word. Thank you for chiming in tonight. Do me a favor and tell somebody, domestic violence wears many tags. And go in peace and love, my brothers and sisters. Go in peace and love. Thank you for chiming in tonight.